Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Welcome to Fright Night. For real. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1985 vampire movie, Fright Night. Produced by Vistar Films, distributed by Columbia Pictures. It stars William Ragsdale, Chris Sarandon, Amanda Bierce, and Roddy McDowell. Written and directed by Tom Holland, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 46 minutes. This is the third film of our Splatter Cinema Month, where all the movies we discuss in the month of October are horror movies. Check out The Slumber Party Massacre and Friday the 13th Part 2 if you missed the other episodes in this series. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Meet Jerry Dandridge. He's sweet, sexy, and he likes to sleep in late. You might think he's the perfect neighbor, but before inviting Jerry in for a nightcap, there's just one thing you should know. Jerry prefers his drinks warm, red, and straight from the jugular. It's Fright Night, a horrific howl starring Chris Sarandon as the seductive vampire and William Ragsdale as the frantic teenager struggling to keep Jerry's deadly fangs out of his neck. Only 17-year-old Charlie Brewster knows Jerry's blood-curdling secret. When Charlie can't get anybody to believe him, he turns to a TV horror host, Peter Vincent, Roddy McDowell, who used to be the great vampire killer of the movies. Can these mortals save Charlie and his sweetheart Amy, Amanda Pierce, from the wrathful bloodsucker's toothy embrace? If you love being scared, Fright Night will give you the nightmare of your life. Fright Night. 
Fright Night. Love it. So that was What's on the Box. Jason, episode three of our Splatter Cinema Month. Here we go. Let's get into this cult classic, my friend. Yeah, talking a little vampires. What are your earliest memories of this movie? Heck yeah, man. We're going back to 1985. And this was most definitely a cable watch for me numerous times. It was definitely a thing. But I really don't have any other nostalgia attached to the actual viewing experience, meaning in regards to where I was or who I was with or quoting the movie on the school playground. However, I do remember specifically feeling bad for Evil Ed. And I remember the commanding presence of Chris Sarandon as Jerry Dandridge, vampire. Chris Sarandon is intimidating, and he's awesome. I love the character of Peter Vincent and his Fright Night show, the show within the show. And you know what, Bill Bant, this movie, now that I think of it, as I was rewatching, I was like, maybe, and most likely, this was my introduction to vampire lore. I probably was what, 12 years old when this came out, and I don't recall seeing many vampire movies before this. As I've mentioned numerous times at nauseum, I was not a big horror genre fan when I was young, so this could have been it for me as far as my introduction into the, the mythology of the vampire story, etc. But yes, back to Chris Sarandon, I definitely had that image stuck in my head of him standing atop his staircase into the house that he has recently moved into. And then finally, it just reminded me of those days of these weekly horror show nights where you would have like a television horror anthology series playing that was presented by a particular host. And of course, what comes to mind, but Elvira and Elvira's movie macabre. I remember that's an early memory for me. It was, and this I'm taking from Wikipedia, it was titled on screen as Movie Macabre with Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, in its original run. And just seeing Cassandra Peterson, who was the actress that played Elvira, very beautiful with the full makeup on and the long black hair and uh, looking very, you know, busty. She had the boobs pushed up. I mean, she's a beautiful woman. So that show originally aired locally from 1981 to 1986. uh, And the show featured B-movies particularly in the horror genre and science fiction genres. And then afterward, in the late 80s, of course, Tales from the Crypt, which was another horror anthology television series, which I didn't realize ran for seven seasons on HBO from 1989 to 1996. And that show was hosted by The Crypt Keeper, a wisecracking corpse. So those are early memories from that time in the 80s, you know, seeing this movie... And as it relates to these types of local TV shows that featured horror movies and had a particular personality host, if you will. So those are my early memories in regards to Fright Night. How about you, Bill Band? Like you, this was certainly a late night cable watch for me. Um, I do remember going to the video store and seeing the box art for this with the house and the I guess what they referred to as the shark tooth vampire on top. And it's like, ah, I might be a little too uh, chicken shit to rent this one. So I waited until it came on cable going into it. I kind of knew who uh, Roddy McDowell was just because I was a big fan of the planet of the apes movies. And I just remember seeing him on other shows. So going into it. Yes. I love the premise of his character being 
a fictional vampire hunter who's then thrust into the role and is not ready for it at all. Just looking back on it, too, you had William Ragsdale, who was on the TV show Herman's Head. And the only reason I watched that show is because of this movie. It was kind of a take on Pixar's Inside Out, where he'd have all these other people literally in his head representing his different emotions. Um, Amanda Bierce, of course, would go on to Married with Children. And I loved her character on that show as the sex-crazed neighbor. But she was totally into her husband. Chris Sarandon, I just thought, oh, what an excellent vampire. Great casting with that one. And just the whole boy who cried wolf angle to it that, you know, we see in, in tons of other movies. But it was definitely once I saw it the first time, anytime it would come on, I would watch it again. It is certainly, I think, an underrated vampire film. It's not one that people really talk about when they talk about vampire movies. I'm excited to get into it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed the rewatch. Yeah, that's my earliest memories. It was a cable watch. Absolutely. I totally agree, except for the fact that I think this is pretty well known in pop culture as one of the classic vampire movies. You might get a little pushback. Well, I'm just going to give you a little pushback on that, Bill Bant. I definitely hear about it, or I think it's present in the culture, but maybe I'm, you know, it's it's a perspective thing. I think it's because people go to Lost Boys first. Oh, sure. More than no, sure than yeah, they go to yeah. this. So in that sense, no, I know it's popular. But uh, I think it should be more popular. <laughs> I would agree with that wholeheartedly. What I would agree with is on the like, if you're specifically going to make like a top ten list of '80s vampire movies, The Lost Boys is probably going to be right up there at number one as far as just being memorable. Yeah, I think Fright Night might be lower on the list. So yeah, I would agree that it should get more attention for sure. Mm -hmm. It should be even even more present than it is. Maybe it's more just more present to the film aficionados and maybe not just in the overall popular culture, but good thoughts. All right. So uh, let's go into initial thoughts. What are your initial thoughts of Fright Night? Absolutely. I'm going to start with Tom Holland, our director. This is his directorial debut. And in the 80s, he would go on to do an episode of Amazing Stories in 86. He does direct Child's Play, also starring Chris Sarandon in 88. And by no coincidence, he does three episodes of Tales from the Crypt from 89 to 92. And I also just want to say that he directed The Temp in 1993. Shout out to our buddy Marwan. Uh, he does a couple episodes of the miniseries The Langoliers in 95. And also one of my weird cult faves, Thinner, in 1996. But Tom Holland is also a writer. He wrote Psycho 2 in 1983. He did write Cloak and Dagger. In 84, which we covered on this podcast, he also wrote this, Fright Night. He wrote the screenplay for Child's Play as well. And he wrote the teleplay and screenplay for The Langoliers and Thinner, respectively. Moving on to Chris Sarandon, our star, our vampire. Yes, he was married to Susan Sarandon from 67 to 79. And yes, you might know him as the incredible Prince Humperdinck in The Princess Bride in 1987. But here, in 1985, he is... In Fright Night as Jerry Dandridge, vampire. And he's quite perfect. I mean, what else can you say? That's an initial thought. What a wonderful presence. He's tall, dark, handsome, smooth, charming, charismatic, devious, Machiavellian. Not quite sure how alluring or sexy his look is that he uses to charm Amy. But otherwise, he's incredible. And he has a wonderful smile. And when that smile creeps across his face, you know he's up to something and it's not good. He's wonderful. I do love watching the Roddy McDowell performance as Peter Vincent. I mean, he's wonderful. 
But uh, it's just great fun watching him do his thing because he's clearly a character actor. He gives a very theatrical performance in this, and it totally works. When we first see him in Charlie Brewster's bedroom on the television in the background, being the host of the local TV show Fright Night, and he is a self-acclaimed vampire killer, and we see him in the midst of killing a vampire as he raises a wooden stake and it's backwards in his hand. He's holding it the wrong way, and it's amazing because it's supposed to be the wrong way. It's just super campy and cheesy, and he's great. He plays it perfectly. And I also found that he had an arc in this, which I could have an emotional investment in and did. I mean, we see him as this washed up, broke local television actor on the brink of being evicted. And once he begins to help Charlie, Amy and Ed, he actually sinks further into this feeling of fraudulence. But then he finds his strength and purpose in helping Charlie overcome at the end. And we actually see his crisis of faith. So I had a certain attachment to Peter Vincent in this particular watching. As I mentioned in my early memories, I've always had a soft spot for Evil Ed. Stephen Joffrey's the actor is great, in my opinion. It's not as though I could personally relate to his character. However, the performance by Stephen Joffrey's, he's just one quirky dude. And I had a lot of sympathy for his character. I think we're led to believe that Evil Ed is a bit of an outsider, most likely not very popular. I might even go as far as to assume he needs friends probably treasures his friendship with Charlie and despises feeling used, like people just want to use him for his smarts, his intellect, or his specialized knowledge for the macabre. Another initial thought, this has a kind of a tough start with Charlie being sexually over-aggressive with Amy, which made me a little uncomfortable, but then Amy just kind of does a 180 and changes her mind about making love for the first time, and I didn't know what to think, but I also catch myself just being an old man watching these types of scenes. You know, I've just turned 50, I'm just going, yeah, I have a totally different perspective than I did as a teenager watching this film. Richard Edlund worked on this as the visual effects producer. Yes, that Richard Edlund who worked on the Star Wars trilogy as well as Raiders of the Lost Ark. I did love the visual effects in this. I love the overall design and take on the makeup effects. Bill, you mentioned the jaws or the shark tooth effect, uh, which I love because a lot of vampire movies kind of portray vampires as being these very overly sexual, very attractive, handsome creatures, even when they become vampires, but not in this. For sure, when they turn into vampires, they are hideous creatures and very simply scary and gross. Love that we just get the one oblivious, negligent 80s movie parent in Mrs. Brewster in this. She doesn't have a freaking clue. It's amazing. It's so over the top. And interestingly enough, maybe a hot take, Bill Bant, an initial thought. I found our main protagonist, that being William Ragsdale as Charlie Brewster, to be the least interesting character in this rewatch. And I don't necessarily mean that as a bad thing. Well, it sounds bad, but I mean, he's okay. He fights the good fight. His motivation is to destroy the evil vampire that has moved in next door. He's doing that in order to save lives, although kind of at the expense of his relationship with Amy. I mean, his motivation is righteous and pure, but that's not entirely interesting to me. He's just this decent looking white boy, high school kid with a cute girlfriend living in a nice suburb. And, you know, he's living in a single parent home and he's having some trouble in trigonometry, but he just wants to do the right thing. End of story. He certainly meets some obstacles on his journey to his goal, trying to convince the police that Jerry is a vampire. And he's trying to convince Peter Vincent, the actor, to help him. But otherwise, I felt like he didn't have a whole lot of personal stakes until, of course, Jerry kidnaps Amy. 
but then I was like, well, he says he's in love with Amy in the beginning of the movie, but he keeps blowing her off in favor of this investigation into his new neighbor, whom he is thinking is a vampire. So that was just a thing. He was fine. He's fine. He's not bad. And the actor's just fine. He's serviceable. It's just, I, I think I'd like the surrounding characters a little more. And now finally, I can see why I liked this movie as a kid, because even though there isn't a lot of character development or background, the seeds are all planted. They're all there. And I didn't have to think about it as a kid. I just felt it, knew it. And I've, I've said before, I extrapolated upon what was given to me on the screen and my imagination did the rest. And that was enough, certainly with this kind of movie. Seeing this again today was a strange sensation. I initially didn't know how to feel about it immediately after watching it. Don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it. And of course, now with my adult hat on or my film critic hat on, I'm looking at it so closely that I find the flaws. And yeah, a few effects are dated. But I let this movie settle in after a while and I had a blast. It's great. It's fun. And it's funny. I really liked it. Those are my initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? Yeah, this is certainly a movie for me doing the rewatch for this episode. I think I actually like the movie now more than I did back then. I mean, the whole premise is it's a boy who cried wolf or chicken little crossed the little rear window. I liked Charlie and Peter Vincent. Watching this, I was like, ah, I would really love to have seen further adventures with them. I know they did a sequel that totally tanked, but I think that was more of studio involvement than anything else. I always seem to like those kind of movies with the curious happenings next door. I know we did the burbs and I bashed the crap out of that one, but that kind of always intrigues me seeing that. And, you know, perfect example is Rear Window. Um, another one is the uh, Shia LaBeouf film Disturbia. So just the whole setup of this is here's a vampire just moving into an ordinary neighborhood, trying to keep it low key. But a kid who's just a horror fan just sees all the signs right away. And of course, no one believes that he's a vampire and he's got to figure out what to do. And the only person you can turn to is a B movie actor who played a vampire hunter but really doesn't know jack shit about vampire hunting. But he has all the tools because he kept all his props from the movie, so that was kind of fun. And just even when they go to his apartment and you just see his shrine to himself and all the things that he used in the other movies, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, Chris Randon as the vampire, I think he's very underrated. I thought he did a great job. I loved his own spin on it with being um, stepping on some trivia where he's always constantly eating fruit because bats tend to eat fruit. So he's always munching on some kind of fruit. So I thought that was kind of a nice little take on it. Like you said, parents, we only see the one mom and she's just oblivious to the whole thing. She's just so caught up in her life and job and losing her husband, which they don't really touch on how it happened. But I think he just kind of like literally left them. So she's no help whatsoever. And of course, all of a sudden she gets the night shift. Surprise, surprise. This is a movie that really works, and I literally watched it like four times. I was just having so much fun with it. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad we came back to rewatch this one because I think I actually do like this movie better than when I first saw it as a kid. I might be inclined to agree with you, and I definitely agree. Watching this, you definitely get some of the Burbs vibes. No question about it. I know there was that. a couple of times I'm like, are they shooting this on the same street? I actually was looking so for that familiar. in the research. Yeah. But I don't think they were. But no. it looks so familiar. Completely. Completely. Yeah. The way that Jerry Dandridge's house is shot as well, in particular, made me think of it. 
because always shrouded in darkness and the smoke effects, etc. Yeah, good stuff, man. I love it. All right, let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of your favorite scenes or moments from Fright Night? You have to say it like that every time. I know, I have to. I it's love awesome. that. It's great. It's so great. I do love it when Chris Sarandon says it that way, like so over the top and theatrical. It's perfect because he's playing into it and he's playing at it and it's appropriate in the moment. So my first favorite scene I'm calling Peeping Charlie or I have that down too. Charlie discovers that Jerry is a vampire. So at this point, Charlie has witnessed Jerry Dandridge and his quote unquote roommate, Billy Cole, carrying a coffin into the cellar of the house next door. They're his new neighbors. And thus, Charlie has become quite suspicious of them. And after he sees a beautiful blonde woman enter the house one day and a subsequent scream coming from the window that night, he becomes even more suspicious. And then the topper is when he sees on the news that her body, that beautiful blonde, has been discovered and she's been killed. Now it's night. He's at home. He's upstairs in his bedroom with his binoculars, looking through his window into the window of the neighbor's house, that being Jerry Dandridge's house, across the way, keeping close watch to see if there's any activity. In the meantime, he's eating chips and he has the horror station on the TV in the background. And the window across the way is dark. Nothing's happening. Dissolve to the TV in Charlie's room with the white fuzz on it. And it's late, obviously. Charlie has fallen asleep in his chair in his room. He awakens to look across the way once again to see a beautiful brunette standing in the window, staring at him. She begins to take her shirt off, and then we see Jerry Dandridge standing behind her as she takes her bra off. Of course, teenage Charlie finds this arousing as he's looking closely through his binocs. Now Jerry's standing behind her with his shirt off, and he kisses her on the neck. Then he raises his head back up, revealing fangs that now appear on his teeth. And just before biting her neck, he looks out of the window and directly at Charlie across the way. Charlie immediately gets up and backs away, knowing he's discovered. Then Jerry calmly, all the while staring at Charlie, pulls the shade down on the window. And Charlie sees that Jerry has extended darkened fingertips with long nails, long fingernails. We get a nice close-up of that. Now, Charlie freaks out. He goes into his mom's room to wake her up, and he says something to the effect of, the guy that bought the house has fangs. I love that line. So Charlie wakes up his mom. Then he runs out of the house and hides in the bushes, looking across the way to the house. And Charlie sees Billy carrying what seems to be a body wrapped in a garbage bag. We can only assume it's the young brunette. And Billy puts that bag in the back of a Jeep. We get this cool POV shot of someone running across Jerry's roof. Cool sound design here. And we hear the swoosh as Jerry appears on the ground suddenly. Well, he throws the girl's purse to Billy saying, you uh, missed this or something along those lines. And then back to Charlie's house. Charlie's now, now like he's doing more of a peeping Tom through the bushes watching this happen as Mrs. Brewster comes out and is yelling, Charlie, Charlie, which just totally blows Charlie's cover. And then Jerry, of course, as you mentioned, Bill, he's in the midst of eating an apple, always eating fruit. He throws his half-eaten apple onto the ground in front of the bushes where Charlie is hiding. Well, Charlie's been made. Clearly, Jerry can see him hiding there, and Charlie flees back into his own house. Just love everything about this whole sequence, starting with Charlie as a peeping Tom of sorts looking in, or I should just like being on stakeout in a way. Get it? Stakeout? At first, I think it's a dream sequence because it cuts to, you know, this dissolve 
with the TV on and the white fuzz and he's awakens and then he sees this really attractive woman taking her shirt off and is Charlie having a fantasy? Nope, as it turns out. And there's a great shot of Chris Sarandon being so alluring and seductive. And when he tilts his head back and we see those great fangs on his teeth and the shot of his extended fingertips and then cut to when Charlie runs down out of the house. And this has some great tension, uh, some good sound design. Chris Sarandon really just flexing, just flexing. And I always hate it when you think you've got the drop on somebody, like you're spying on someone or eavesdropping or whatnot, and you think you're well hidden, and then you get busted. It's the worst feeling in the world. So I love and hate this scene for that reason, because you know Jerry can sense Charlie hiding in the bushes and he totally (laughs) sees him there. And Charlie has nowhere to go. So that's it. And clearly Charlie knows that Jerry's a vampire at this point. So how freaked out would you be? It's like, okay, he knows that I know and he knows that I've been watching him. So I'm screwed and he has no choice but to run back into the house. And it certainly didn't help that his mom totally busted him. That's it. That's my first favorite scene. Yeah, I had that down my first favorite scene, too, and great breakdown of it. I'll be honest, that girl in the window, if you ask me in my 20s who my dream girl was, that was her. <laughs> yeah, so seeing her on the hot. screen, I was like, oh, my God, she is gorgeous. And she didn't even have to take her top off. Just her herself was gorgeous. But thanks for the bonus. I never thought of it as a dream sequence. But when you said that, that does make a lot of sense. Because this movie really starts right away in the opening scene. Yep. where he sees the coffin being taken into the house. It's it's not messing around. So because Charlie is such a lover of old school horror movies, the wheels are already turning and he's just suspicious and he wants to know what's going on. And especially literally seeing that girl who went to Jerry's house and now she's dead. He wants to know what's going on. So he, yeah, he's spying over there and sure enough, he gets busted. Yeah. And it is a great scene because you think he's, gonna see jerry bite this girl and he just knows right away that someone's watching him and jerry just turns to look out the window and tries busted. there's nothing he can do and instead of being in a panic he just slowly grabs the curtain string yeah. and just pulls it down and you see those vampire fingers and continues doing his business because <laughs> yeah who cares i'll take care of this kid later i'm not worried this kid is not a threat to me that's kind of scary too. That he knows he, he's not. He shouldn't be worried about it. That he's gonna, you know, have his meal and uh, move on. And they'll take care of this kid later. It's just a great scene. Just the way it shot. It just takes its time. And then, yeah, God, I was so mad at the mom. I was so mad at the mom. It's totally. like first you don't believe, and then like, why are you coming out and yelling for your kid? Yeah, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> He'll come back <laughs> in when he needs to. Yeah, open your eyes. How about that? And pay attention to what's going on next door a little bit. That's great stuff, man. I wanted to say real quick, I should have put it in my initial thoughts, but I totally agree. This movie moves really quickly. It's a little over an hour and 45 minutes, but it moves fast. It gets right into it. And I meant to mention that. So I'm glad you brought that up. There's not a lot of time spent on a slow buildup or development of background, et cetera, setup. It just gets right to it. Also, there's always with, I think I touched on it, but in vampire lore and the presentation of vampires in movies, there's always the sexual nature of things. And that scene with that brunette, the fact that when Jerry is looking across the way through his binoculars and sees her standing there, she's looking right at him. She's staring at him as if she wants him to watch. 
And Chris Sarandon as Jerry Dandridge definitely doesn't mind, it seems, right? Because you said Charlie's not a threat. But it's very sexy, is my point. That's yes. kind of it's a sexy scene because she takes her bra off. She's, you know, she's topless and she's beautiful. But the fact that Jerry's standing directly behind her and kissing her from behind on the neck and is so gentle and tender with her, but we know how dark and evil he is at the same time. And they're staring at Charlie, who is in the position of a voyeur at this point. It's very sexy. Yeah, I could certainly see a poster out of this scene where we see the back of Charlie's head holding binoculars going through his window. And then you just see the window across right like right when Jerry's about to bite the girl. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's watching all that. It was like, oh, this would be such a great looking like B-movie poster. Great call. That would yeah. be an awesome poster. I'm sure someone will do it at some point or it might already be out there. Who knows? But uh, that would definitely sell the movie for me right there. Good first scene. We're on the same page there. And I'm sure we're going to be on the same page on this one, too, because my next favorite scene is Jerry visits Charlie with a warning. Awesome. I didn't write it down only because I hoped you would have it. So this is great. After the incidents we just talked about, Charlie goes to the police to hopefully convince that his next door neighbors are a vampire. Not necessarily tells them a vampire, but that all these murders are happening. That We've heard this on the news, that there's murders happening. And uh, Charlie's put one on one together and realizes it's his next door neighbor because he's a vampire. And the police come over and they meet with Jerry's assistant or his Renfield, per se, who's Billy Cole. And Billy Cole quickly convinces the police that uh, you got the wrong person and move on. But now, of course, Charlie knows he's kind of in a pickle because they know that he definitely knows that they're a vampire and Charlie could be the next victim. So he runs to his friend Ed to say, how do I prepare for this? Ed doesn't really believe him, but he tells him what he should do anyway. So Charlie gets his garlic and his crosses and his steaks and his holy water and sets his room up to hopefully not be attacked by Jerry. Well, unfortunately, Charlie's up all night and he's on high alert and he hears something downstairs. So he runs downstairs to investigate it. Well, unfortunately, when he's downstairs, Jerry shows up upstairs. And I forgot to mention earlier, there's an earlier scene when Ed tells Charlie he doesn't have anything to worry about because the only way the vampire can come into his house is be invited. Well, that's already happened because Charlie's mom has invited Jerry over for a drink because, you know, he is handsome and suave and he probably talked his way in anyway. So that's a fun scene. Yeah. Jerry's got free reign to get in the house. So Charlie knows this. So he's like, I'm in deep, deep shit. So once again, Charlie hears a noise downstairs, goes down to investigate. And while that is going on, Jerry enters his mom's room and is standing over her. And you're like, oh, crap. But that's not who Jerry's here for. He's here for Charlie. So he exits the room, goes into Charlie's room and kind of hides in the closet. So Charlie's downstairs, hears that the noise is just a tree against the window. He's like, oh, okay, no big deal. So then he goes back upstairs to go into his room, not knowing that Jerry is in the closet. And sure enough, he comes out, attacks Charlie, grabs him by the throat and says, look, I'm going to give you a warning. You have no idea who I am. And if you keep it that way, I'll let you live. If not, we're going to have a problem. And it makes sense because for Jerry not to kill him because he just moved in and this police have already been aware that he was a possibility. And all of a sudden, the, the kid that runs in tell the police that my next door neighbor is a vampire. And if he goes missing, that would just raise further suspicion. Yeah. So he's just going to try to make a deal. Either 
you just stay out of my business or we're going to have a problem. Charlie doesn't want to do that. He ends up fighting back. Jerry's about to throw Charlie out the window. And then that's when Charlie grabs a pencil and stakes Jerry through the hand. And when that happens, we see the true form of Jerry the vampire. And it's not a pretty sight. Jerry ends up leaving. Charlie knows he's still screwed. Things have gotten worse for him. And then the phone rings and it's Jerry on the other line. And Jerry's like, I know you're there. Just so you know, I roughed up your car and you're going to be next. So be prepared. Jerry knows there's nothing Charlie can do. He's in deep shit. And that's where it ends. And you're just kind of like, what does Charlie do now? I mean, he is backed against the wall. He's in big trouble. He is going to be the next victim on the list. And there's nothing he can do. It's a good way to end that first act. We know that Charlie knows that Jerry's a vampire. And Jerry knows that Charlie knows that he's a vampire. And he's going to be the next victim if he can't find a way out of the situation. Great scene. Sarandon is just suave, smooth, and more alliterations. So when... I mean, you know how he just appears in Mrs. Brewster's bedroom because he's come through the window and you always kind of hear that swoosh because we can only assume he was in vampire bat form and flew in through the window, but we don't need to see it. And he just appears and he's just there and he just kind of glides around and then, of course, hides in Charlie's closet and comes out and tries to make a deal with him. But those makeup effects are awesome. He looks gruesome and it's scary and the teeth are scary and the fingers are scary. All of it's great makeup effects. And he's just so suave when he goes back home after having been stabbed in the hand with the pencil. And Billy Cole is helping him drain the blood from his hand. And he's on the phone with Charlie saying, I just love that. You know, I've destroyed your car, but that's nothing compared to what I'm going to do to you. And it's not as if he's yelling or anything. He's just so subtle about it. Just like plainly stating, I'm going to murder you. So get ready tomorrow night. You get to look forward to that. If that's not scary enough. So great call. And and it just really raises the tension and anxiety for Charlie, for sure. Good stuff, man. Uh, What do you got next? My next favorite scene I'm calling clubbing with a vampire. Okay, now at this point, we're all aware. Jerry's a vampire. He's coming after Charlie, and we have Charlie, Evil Ed, his best friend, and his girlfriend, Amy, who have attempted to recruit Peter Vincent, actor, TV host, vampire killer, to confirm that Jerry is a vampire, but to no avail. Although Peter Vincent figures it out at the last second using his hand mirror, and Peter Vincent freaks out, and he drives home. But we have Charlie, Amy, and Ed that are on the walk home, and they're going through town. Well, Charlie gets into a little beef with Evil Ed, and Ed goes down an alley and gets bitten by Jerry. Jerry shows up out of nowhere with some smoke and some mystery, and he appears out of nowhere and bites Ed, truly turning him into Evil Ed. And then Jerry starts stalking Charlie and Amy through town all the way to a local nightclub. Meanwhile, Peter Vincent has gotten home only to be greeted by the newly transformed Evil Ed, who is now a vampire. And Peter manages to fend him off with a holy cross, but cut back to the nightclub. And you know I love some 80s dancing. We get a lot of that. Some 80s synth and 80s music. And now we have Jerry, who has appeared in his uh, comfortable casual wear. Looking sexy. A little bit older than all the, uh, the clientele at the club, but doesn't matter. Nobody's paying attention to him, which is great unto itself. That he glides and moves through the club as if... He cannot be seen, even though he's in plain sight. Love it. Love that touch. 
He approaches Amy as in the background, Charlie is frantically on the phone with Peter Vincent, begging him to come back and continue to help them. Meanwhile, yes, we and we got a little hint of this when they had initially gone over to Jerry's house to establish he was a vampire with Peter Vincent in tow to help them prove this. Well, we get a moment where Jerry takes Amy's hand and kisses her hand, and we can see that, as we know that vampires tendency to do this, he's charming her. And she seems to be almost immediately seduced by him, but then they part ways and they end up at this nightclub. And now Jerry has come to seduce Amy fully. And here they begin a somewhat sexy dance on the dance floor. Jerry takes her out onto the floor and this gets pretty hot. It gets pretty steamy. I was a little bit surprised by this Bill Band. I hadn't remembered this for some reason. I don't know why, but Jerry's uh, has her from behind and reaches down between her legs. It doesn't get too graphic, but uh, she even tries to get away in a moment, but she's overcome by his charm. And even in a moment, her hair seems to change and the music changes and it's getting hot up in here. And there's some grabbing of the butt cheeks, as you would say, Bill. And Amy's looking very mature all of a sudden, and she's getting pretty sexy and even goes down on Jerry in a moment. Not literally, but I mean, she physically goes down on him and then stands back up in the midst of a dance move. And then Charlie sees them together and he freaks out. Jerry and Amy start spin dancing. And this is probably why it's my favorite scene, actually, is this moment when they start spinning around on the dance floor and Amy is looking into a mirror on the side wall. And as she's spinning, it's great editing, in my opinion. You can't see Jerry's reflection. So it appears as if she's spinning by herself and it keeps cutting back to her and she has to stop for a moment and look in the mirror and she can see herself, but she can't see Jerry, but they continue to dance. It's all as if she's now in the midst of a trance. So Charlie approaches them and he goes right up to Jerry and Charlie attempts a punch, but Jerry catches Charlie's fist without even looking at him, which is great. He has the sixth sense and he just has knows when evil is lurking around that being Jerry being evil himself. So he says to Charlie, you shouldn't lose your temper, Charlie. It isn't polite. I love that. Jerry extends his fingernails and ends up taking out of the bouncers that try to help Charlie in a moment. But no, Jerry quickly takes care of them. The bouncers go flying across the room and all hell breaks loose. Everybody's trying to run out now because Jerry has revealed himself as a vampire in a moment here and taken out the bouncers. So they're running down the stairwell and it's just chaos, people everywhere. And Charlie is trying to get Amy out of the club, but they get separated. And of course, Jerry ends up getting a hold of Amy, taking her away. And we get that great shot of Charlie looking over the stairs, yelling with his arm extended, going, Amy! It's a great shot. And he runs out of the club. And not in time, though, as Jerry and Amy. And who's in the back of the Jeep? Well, it's Evil Ed who's pointing at Charlie, just laughing his evil laugh as they drive away. So it's a fun scene. There's some sexy dancing going on, and you see Jerry charming Amy and putting her into a bit of a trance. I like Amanda Bierce's performance in this particular scene and love the shot of Jerry disappearing in the mirror, basically, as as reflection no longer appears. And there's some fun action when he's taking out the bouncers. Sarandon is a stud in the scene. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd be seduced by him too. I think he does look good in his casual wear and his sweater and his pants. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> damn, this guy's 
freaking handsome. Hate it. But yeah, this scene does play into one of your classic vampire tropes is we have a former lost love and we see a painting when Charlie goes over to the police and he finds a painting of this woman that just happens to look like Amy. And then I'll get into my next favorite scene when Jerry meets Amy for the first time. Of course, it reminds her of this lost love. And now he wants to have her not as a victim, but as a new partner to move on with through his vampire life. Not only is he trying to kill Charlie, but now he needs Amy to hopefully uh, be his longtime companion here on out. And that's why he's really after her to stick with the Charlie a little bit too, but he, he wants her for himself. So that's how the scene plays out where he seduces her and basically almost in a way has her fall for him, even though it's not of her free will. It's just, uh, you know, the aura of the vampire lore that they can have some sort of mind control. And that's how this whole scene kind of plays out. And it is great because you have that huge mirror and you have the shot of them two dancing together. Then it cuts to her dancing herself, the two of them together back to herself. And in the meantime, Charlie's oblivious to this because he's trying to get Peter Vincent on the phone to help again, not knowing that he's been tracked down and Amy can't help being drawn to Jerry and now Jerry's going to whisk her away. That's a good scene. What do you have next, my friend? Yeah, I had to have something with Peter Vincent in it. So I picked the test. So after Charlie realizes that Jerry is going to come to his home the following night and kill him, Charlie is desperate for help. He's gone to the police. The police don't believe him. His friends don't believe him. His mom doesn't believe him. So he's going to go to Peter Vincent, host of Fright Night, vampire killer, and maybe he can convince him that his next door neighbor is actually a vampire and if he can help kill Jerry Dandritz. Of course, when he shows up to meet with Peter, Peter blows him off. He says vampires aren't real. Kid, you got a problem. See you later. But at this point, Amy and Ed go to Charlie's house and see that it is all decked out as anti-vampire garlic candles. He's making steaks. and. Amy and Ed suggest, like, well, why don't you go to Peter Vincent and see what Peter Vincent will do if he can help you? And Charlie said, I already did, and he blew me off. So Amy and Ed have the idea of, why don't we go talk to Peter Vincent, and maybe Peter can help us convince Charlie that the next-door neighbor is not a vampire. So they go over there. They pay him $500 to help them out. So Ed calls Jerry and says, hey, can we come over? And run some vampire tests to show that you're not a vampire. So Charlie will not be convinced. And Jerry's like, sure, that'd be great. And first they ask about crosses. And Jerry's like, ah, no, that's probably not a good idea. I'm born again Christian. I'm not into that stuff. And then they're like, can we do the holy water test then? Of course, Jerry's hesitant about that too. But they say, no, it'll just be tap water. You don't have anything to worry about. So Jerry's like, okay, fine. We'll do the test. So it's the next night they go to Jerry's house and it's Amy, Ed, Charlie, and Peter Vincent. They come into the house and this is when Jerry meets Amy for the first time. He realizes she looks like his ex lover. I, you know, I'm not sure exactly Mm -hmm. who she is, but there's some connection for something in his past. And even Billy recognizes it. So Jerry makes a little joke with Peter that he's enjoyed his movies and uh, finds them very funny and campy. 
And Peter kind of takes it as a compliment, yet not sure if he's being insulted at the same time. Decide to move on with the test, and Peter produces a vial of holy water, which he claims that was blessed. And you can see at that moment that Jerry's been told on the phone that it's not really holy water. But he's a little hesitant. You know, he's a yeah. little worried that maybe this is holy water and he could be exposed right here. So he takes the vial, kind of looks at it, puts it up to the the fire. I don't know what that would do. But then he opens the vial, drinks it down and says, see, all good. And at that point, Peter turns to Charlie and says, see, he's not a vampire. Everything's fine. Let's get out of here. And of course, Charlie at first brushes back. He's like, no, maybe the water wasn't blessed. And Peter's like, what? Are you calling me a liar? Are you saying I didn't bless the water? The water's blessed. He drank it. Nothing happened to him. Let's leave them alone. We've already done enough to disturb these people. Let's just move on. Charlie's like, all right, fine. And they're about to leave. And you see Ed and Amy and Peter start walking out. But Billy kind of holds Charlie back for a second. And then while that's going on, Peter has this mirror that he used in one of his movies. And he goes to open it. And when he looks at it, he sees that there's no reflection of Jerry and has a quick little freak out. And Jerry, of course, catches this right away and says, is anything wrong? And Peter's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm fine. And Jerry's like, OK, the four of them are dismissed. And Charlie picks up on right away that Peter saw something or knows something. And he starts hounding Peter about it. It's like, what is it? What is it? I know you saw something. Tell me what it is. And Peter tells Charlie after he gets in his car and about to drive off that he did not see Jerry's reflection in the mirror. So Jerry could possibly be a vampire. And Charlie is like, okay, let's do something about it. And Peter's like, yeah, thanks. No, thanks. And he speeds off. But of course, Amy and Ed did not hear Peter say this. So once again, Charlie is back on his own. And that's when Charlie realizes he needs to get Ed and Amy home as quickly and safely as possible because he's back on his own having to defend himself against Jerry. I thought it was a good little scene. I just need me some Peter Vincent. That's really when he realizes he's been a B-movie fictional character fighting vampires, but there really is vampires out there. Scary shit. <laughs> it is scary shit, man. Good call on providing us with a Peter Vincent scene. We needed it. It's well-deserved. Peter Vincent is a great character. It's a great idea by Tom Holland to come up with this character. And also, obviously, Roddy McDowell is a great actor. So I love this scene. I love the fact, like I spoke of the arc we get to see with his character because he kind of goes on a downward spiral after this, realizing that he feels like a fraud anyway, because, or he's just disappointed that his career isn't going the way it is. His TV show is going to be canceled and he is not a real vampire killer. He's just an actor playing a part. But here now he has a chance to help somebody. And then he realizes the vampire is real. And there's a scene later that I was tempted to put in here where he's frightened. He's succumbed to fear. And he does not want to help Charlie, and Charlie's having to beg him to help him, and he just won't do it, but then finds the courage within to help, and then even then fails and then comes back at the end. So it's great stuff, which I'm actually about to get into. So I'm so glad that you did highlight a Peter Vincent scene. 
especially that particular moment when Chris Sarandon holds that vial up to the firelight. And it is specific. We don't know what he sees, but we can assume that the vampire has extrasensory perception so he can see that the liquid is not holy water. And it is indeed, as Peter Vincent had said over the phone, just tap water. So very cool stuff. There's some nice subtlety in that particular scene. It's great stuff, man. My next favorite scene is what I'm calling Evil Ed Bites the Dust. And you know what? This scene hit me hard as a kid. It bothered me, it upset me, and it made me sad. This scene had an impact on me big time. I didn't like it, and it was heartfelt even today watching it. So we know that Peter Vincent has attempted to summon the courage to help Charlie as they've gone now to Jerry's house to confront him and hopefully vanquish this vampire. But in the midst of this, Peter who is holding up a cross to fend off Jerry, has a crisis of faith, thus the Holy Cross will not work. But Charlie holds up his own cross, and that works, but to no avail because Billy shows up to back up Jerry. Billy knocks Charlie over the banister, knocking him out, and Peter then flees. And he goes over to the Brewster household to awaken Mrs. Brewster to tell him that or tell her that her son is in danger and to call the police. But when he gets there, the phone line's been cut. And he runs into her bedroom to try to wake her up, saying, Miss Brewster, your phone line's been cut. But it's not Mrs. Brewster in the bed, but now vampire evil Ed wearing a Raggedy Ann wig. Quite disturbing. He's wearing that red stringy wig, and he's not looking so good. We'd seen in a previous scene that Peter Vincent had fended him off by putting a cross to his forehead. That's when Peter had a little bit of faith and a little bit of courage. And we see now that Evil Ed is still wearing the scar from that cross on his forehead. He's sweating. He's drooling. He's got the shark teeth. It's not good. He's got the eye contacts. His eyes are all red. He looks terrible. So this obviously freaks out Peter Vincent, and he runs out into the hallway as Evil Ed is growling at him. Peter goes fleeing into the hallway and crashes into a small table, which shatters as one of the wooden legs break off. And then we hear something happening in the bedroom where Evil Ed was, and all of a sudden, instead of Evil Ed, the vampire, walking out in humanoid form... <laughs> bipedal form, he has transformed into a wolf. It's great. So we see this wolf now staring down Peter Vincent, who is lying on the floor, cowering. And wolves are beautiful creatures. And this wolf in particular is quite intimidating. You love the eyes. He's lowering his head. He's beginning to growl. And he charges Peter. And it's scary. (laughs) That wolf is coming at you like that. But somehow... Peter grabs one of the broken wooden legs and uses it as a stake. And as the wolf charges and leaps at Peter, he stabs the wolf in the chest. The wolf goes over the banister, hits the chandelier, and falls. It's a great shot. And I'm hoping no animals were harmed in the filming of this movie, but that's a great shot of the wolf hitting the banister, uh, excuse me, hitting the chandelier and falling to the ground. Then Peter leans over the edge to look down to the floor and sees the wolf attempting to crawl away with this stake through its heart. It's brutal. 
And you can tell the wolf a little bit here with some dated effects is a bit animatronic, but still it's really quite sad to see this wolf trying to crawl off to the side. Peter goes down the stairs to witness the transformation of the wolf back into Ed in his human form. It's awful and it's goopy and it's gross. And is it quite up to the par of the the transformation in American Werewolf in London? Not quite there, but there's some inventive cutting back and forth when we see the wolf turning back into this mess that is Ed and you see the wolf head and his hairy body and then it cuts back and forth. And you can just tell that Ed is in tremendous pain as this transformation is happening. He's reaching out. He's trying to pull the stake from his chest. And what helps the scene is Roddy McDowell's acting because he's witnessing it happen and he's crying. There's a tear coming from his eye because he knows he can't help Ed. And he's still in a fearful state and almost doesn't want to help him. He can't. Ed is evil, truly. Ed falls to the ground and we literally hear him whimpering. Again, credit to Stephen Joffrey's performance in the scene. Ed reaches out towards Peter one more time, reaching out to him as he's dying. And we see him finally expire. And that burn mark from the cross on his forehead disappears. And evil Ed is no more. He's died. But we see him as the young boy he was originally with the stake through his heart. It's an important scene. Uh, It made me really sympathetic towards the character of Ed as it did when I was a kid watching it. But this scene is important because it gives Peter Vincent then the resolve to return to Jerry's house in order to assist Charlie and Amy. So, yeah, it's just a tough one to watch because some of the effects are great. Some of them don't work as well. But when you see the static shots of Ed sitting there with the wolf face, etc., and then as it changes and he's a little bit less wolf and then he becomes human, you're just like, oh, man, this poor poor teenage kid. I don't had an impact on me. Yeah, it's a tough scene because they do draw it out. It's impressive. It's all practical effects. Yeah, you really feel for Ed. You feel that he is suffering and you're sitting there just watching it. You're just kind of just let him die, please. Just let him die. Right. Yeah. And then just Peter's reaction because he's killed Ed. There's nothing he can do about it. And the fact that he just sits there and watches it when he really knows you need to go back to Jerry's house and help Charlie. But at the same time, you're trying to be sympathetic. It's a kid. I mean, it's a kid that tried to kill you, but it's still a kid who's just confused. And what did I just do? You know, we, we talked about this a little bit last week with Friday the 13th, where we always just say when the killer's down, just kill him. It's not that easy. This kind of proves my point right here. It's yeah, he had to defend himself from being killed. But he's killed someone, and now he's watching the consequences play out, and it's it's really affecting him. So, yeah, it's it's a tough scene. Yeah, for the f- most part, I think the effects are pretty cool. Um, I just love the fact that it is practical. Yeah, it's not on par with American Werewolf in London. It's still some neat stuff. So there's definitely some new techniques you see in this transformation that you haven't seen in other werewolf or vampire films. Great comments. The fact that you're watching the suffering, first and foremost, is awful. It's gut-wrenching. Yeah, it's hard. And it's tragic is what it is. Because I remember as a kid and then watching it today, just thinking about Ed because he made a bad choice. He's just a teenage kid who's trying to fit in. And although I would have liked a little more development as to how he got the moniker Evil Ed and his taste for maybe the macabre or, or the dark, 
and or the gothic, if you will. I'm right there with you. He was probably struggling to fit in. And here, as Jerry says briefly, like I said earlier, the seeds are planted here. I just wanted more. Is that Jerry says now it's like you can fit in, you can be popular, you can have power. And that's so alluring, especially to a teenage boy who is not one of the popular kids by any stretch. And here he has a chance. He just makes a bad choice as a kid and dies as a result of it. Yeah, I didn't even re- yeah, really think about it. That's a good point, you know, from Peter's perspective, the fact that he just killed a kid. If you think about it too much, you're like, oh my God, this is really awful. Right. It's pretty emotional. You go from play acting, killing vampires, to not thinking they're real, to finding out they're real, and then all of a sudden you're killing one and it's a kid vampire. It becomes a totally different story. Good point in referencing what we were talking about with Friday the 13th Part 2, because I actually thought of this same conversation earlier in this film when Jerry is so adamant about staking Jerry through the heart, killing Jerry. And Amy literally walks up and says, but that would be murder. Yep. When Charlie says, yeah, but he's not alive. He's undead. Remember, you can't murder somebody that's already dead. But that's his his excuse. But it made me think of the same thing. It's like, oh, yeah, it's killing a killer is not as easy as you might think. Right. So let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it certainly has steak holes. Yes, if it doesn't have those steak holes, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So Jason, what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? If I put myself in Charlie Brewster's shoes, if I'm a, let's say, 17, 18-year-old high school kid, and I saw my neighbors carrying a coffin into their cellar, would that have piqued my curiosity? Absolutely. Would that curiosity take precedence over my girlfriend asking me to make love to her for the first time? No way, no how. Absolutely never in a million years. That's my first complaint. Because <laughs> That coffin's like, not going anywhere. Dude, you can talk about it, deal with it in the morning. Your girlfriend is on your bed right now asking you, To have sex with her, and you are way too preoccupied with this other thing. I think you need to attend to your girlfriend's needs. Yes. And especially as a teenage kid with raging hormones, I'm just like, no, no way, dude. (laughs) Been waiting a year for this. That's right. He does say that, yeah. But I just love the fact, too, just to pile on that point, is Amy gets mad because then Charlie doesn't want to do anything, and they run downstairs, and Amy's literally screaming, you wanted to make love. And the mom's right there and says nothing. Right. Nothing. She's the most oblivious character of all. I don't know. We're going to have to do a ranking of oblivious, negligent parents in 80s movies, I think. She's got to be right up there. Yeah. She might be top five. Yeah. Have some kind of conversation with her, like, use protection or something. She just, Mm -hmm. I'm like, you heard that. Your son was about to have sex with a girl upstairs. But maybe his mom was just happy with the, the fact that they were calling it making love that it was Maybe. romantic that they were regarding it as a That's sacred true. romantic you know act of some kind <laughs> please right what do you got for complaints or maybe holes some swiss cheese this could be a possible hole so we have charlie sees that first victim she comes out of the taxi and asks the address of charlie's house and he's like no that's next door and then he sees her on the news that she got killed. And then he sees what happens to the next victim, the next girl, my, my dream girl. 
Right. And then he goes to the police, which is fine. But I don't understand why. I don't know. He seemed to go about it wrong because it's like, okay, the girl came in a cab. So they could verify that that girl got dropped off. Gotcha. There is a trail that he can prove that at least those girls have been in the house. So that should make them a suspect. Not necessarily he can arrest him right then. But the fact that the police just blow him off so quickly because he says the vampire. Yeah, but there's there's evidence that points to these people have been in that house. You have to investigate. We never see the police officer again. True. He just comes in for the one scene and that was it. You could have proved that they were there. I like it. Yeah, I agree. So you're saying Charlie went about his investigation or at least his evidence gathering and presenting to the police the wrong way. Right, because he could have said, it's like, I saw, I mean, where she's like, I saw that victim at my house the night before she was murdered and she was going next door. Absolutely. He can provide a description of her and say that she arrived in a cab and the least the police could do is contact the cab company. Right. To verify that she had actually taken it. And just had the police go to the house. He does not, he did not need to go in there with them. All he had to talk about was the first victim. It's like, oh, that girl in the news I saw last night, I saw her in my neighborhood the night before she went to the house of blah, 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 because she asked me the address. So then the police would at least go to the house and investigate. It's great stuff, man. You know what it makes me think? It would be really fun to take 80s movies that have any police involvement and re edit them, do a cut in the fashion of a Law and Order episode. Right. Or a CSI episode, just to see how many holes and flaws there are as far as the investigation goes or the law goes, just to point out the failings. But it's it's very typical, obviously, as we know, in the 80s movies where the police aren't shown in a favorable light because the investigation by the police just stops after one scene. Mm-hmm. I agree. That's a good call. Good call. This was fun. Speaking of Mrs. Oblivious, Mrs. Brewster... Oblivious Brewster. No way Mrs. Brewster doesn't hear the commotion moments after Jerry the vampire first attacks Charlie in his bedroom. It just takes way too long. She eventually starts screaming from her room. She's been basically locked in her room because we, as we know, Jerry had flown into her room. And then when he closes the door behind him, he jams it so shut. He jams it so hard that it, literally shatters the dorm frame, the door frame. So Mm -hmm. that's one thing. I'm like, okay, well, she finally calls out for Charlie. She's like, what's that noise? What's that noise? So it takes her forever because Charlie's been thrown about his room and making a lot of noise, but she finally hears it. And then, of course, Jerry takes off and Charlie goes to her room and she comes out and she's talking about how she's got to get her rest because she's taking on the night shift and she's going to have to... Anyway, regardless, she walks right back into her room and doesn't notice that the door frame has been shattered. <laughs> like it's just yeah, the whole like, closet's been collapsed. Like, yeah, I mean, everything is strewn about. It's kind of, I get it. It's supposed to be a little over the top. She's playing a very specific character. And it's a trope in these types of movies. But that was like, wow, she's got to be blind. <laughs> yeah. What else you got, man? Uh, my next complaint is Amanda Beers. I loved Amanda Beers in Married with Children, but I was not convinced for one second she was a high school student. Mm. She just she just seemed too old. Okay. I didn't see the connection with her and Charlie at all. It just doesn't do it for me. 
I had a complaint about her character because I don't think she comes off great in the movie. So I did have that a few complaints down here in my notes. But I see that. I feel like she was miscast. I can't disagree. Let me just put it that way. Yeah. 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 Like, I like Ragsdale because he is the your typical just kid next door. Sure. He's not too handsome. Seems like a nice kid. Even going into this, I mean, Amanda Bears is 26 years old. She seems, she looks like she's 26 years old. She does look I mean, a little Ragsdale's more. 23. Yeah. I did look but that he up. Has a baby see face. Yeah, he does. He looks like he's 20. But she just looks like she's way too old for him. I mean, it works better once she goes through the transformation because it feels like she matures. And that works there. But just the first half of the movie, I didn't find her very believable. Hmm. And I didn't think for a second the two of them were together. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's interesting you you mentioned, too, that uh, William Ragsdale does have that younger look, the boy next door look, not too handsome. Because stepping on trivia here, uh, they were looking at Charlie Sheen to play that role. And he was too much of a hero. Yeah, that, that would not have worked at all. Yeah. So uh, William Ragsdale was a little bit better for that part. But yeah, now that you, you point that out, I have to. Yeah, I'll just go ahead and agree. She does mm-hmm. look a bit more mature. And I wasn't a big fan of her character in the movie. Getting back to my complaint, if we were going to talk about Amy in particular, because in the beginning, yes, definitely. Yes. Charlie's getting a little handsy with her and she keeps telling him to stop and then he finally stops and then she says okay no i'm ready to make love and she kind of follows him around in the beginning of the movie even though he's not giving her the time of day we know that he loves her he makes that very clear he actually says it and we know that they're very much together they've been together for over a year but he's clearly distracted by the vampire situation and she just she just keeps following him around She's not a really strong character. Let's just put it that way. And she looks hot as the vampire. And there's some great makeup effects on her as a vampire. Spoiler. And she gets turned and appears with the giant shark tooth mouth, which is awesome. Yes, it is. Is awesome. I meant that that was one of my favorite moments. I didn't mention is that reveal. Her giant shark tooth mouth is incredible. But other than that, Yeah, she's just okay. The character's not great. Mm -hmm. Here's a big one for me. One, what would have happened? I guess this could go in additional questions. What would have happened if Peter Vincent told Charlie that he killed his best friend? That's a complaint. It's not addressed. When Peter Vincent goes back to the house, he goes to save and help Charlie and Amy. And Amy's been turned already at this point. It's kind of like, where is... Charlie's sense of loss that he's just, you know, that he lost his best friend. You know, his best friend was turned into a vampire and got killed. Well, that's funny because that's my next complaint is is about Evil Ed. Uh-huh. Because I don't think Charlie and Ed are friends at all. You could definitely make that case. I totally agree. Because it seemed like the first time they meet, they're coming out of class. And right. Charlie's kind of talking out loud. And Ed interjects himself into it. And Charlie almost looks at him like, fuck off, man. I don't need to hear from you. So I'm like, okay, are they just classmates? Are they actually friends? But then... That's great call. Yeah, yeah. but then when he finds out that Jerry's going to come to his house and kill him, then he goes to Ed for vampire advice. But I'm like, well, why would he go to Ed? What the hell does... We don't know if that he knows anything about... He's just using him. Yeah. 
you watch Fright Night. You should know what to do. How's an expert or supposed expert? Well, there's some stuff missing there. And that's why yeah. I uh, wanted more for the character of Ed. And I wanted, I'll get into it probably, but a little bit more. That's just the Jason Masick perspective as an adult. I always want more. It's like being a dead horse on this podcast, right? I know, ladies and gentlemen, you listening out there going, oh, here he goes. And yes, here I go. More character development, more relationship development, more relationship background. Because I'm only asking for one scene, and it could be a brief scene, but we needed to see how Evil Ed got the moniker or why is that maybe he's wearing a shirt that has like a a movie poster on it that's bloody or something. Or when when Charlie goes to seek Ed's advice about how to kill a vampire, we do see a skull on his shelf because I rewatched that scene to Mm -hmm. see is there any hints as to why Evil Ed's called Evil Ed. And in the beginning, you're absolutely right. When we see the first scene where Evil Ed appears in the classroom, they're walking out and Charlie's pissed because he failed a quiz. It was a surprise quiz. And he's saying that out loud, as he mentioned. And Evil Ed goes, well, yeah, that's the point of a surprise quiz, genius. And Charlie looks at him and goes, okay, Evil Ed, as as if it's a derogatory moniker. And you see Ed immediately deflate. And he goes... Whatever, man, I'm not the one failing trigonometry. And then, of course, later, when, again, Charlie goes to Ed to seek his advice, Ed clearly almost yells at him and says, don't call me evil Ed. Are these guys really? Yeah, you wouldn't do that to your your friend. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we rib each other. But I think on that respect, I, if he was my friend, I would not do that. Because then we have the diner scene when Charlie finds out about that hooker. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's sitting with Ed at the table. Like he gets up to look at the newscast, and then Ed kind of walks into frame from somewhere else. So, I'm like, if they were friends, they'd be sitting eating together. Good call. Sure. Very. Yeah. That's, that's a. I don't know what their relationship is. Because I wanted to talk about Evil Ed, I went back to watch his scenes. I fast forwarded through the movie to uh-huh. just his scenes because I like the actor. He's very over, the, like, kind of a weird kid. Yes. The way he's portraying him, at least. I, I can't say what Stephen Joffrey's like in real life, but he portrays him as this weird kid. So it's really well done. I give him a lot of credit as an actor because he doesn't have a lot to work with on the page or what's actually Correct. shown uh, in the movie. But we can get a sense that this kid is different. And there's not an, we don't know enough about him, but he doesn't like the name Evil Ed and he doesn't like the way he's been treated. And then Jerry gives him the option of becoming a, a badass vampire, and he takes takes that option. And it's sad because he goes goes out in a horrific way. Yeah. Where else do I got to turn to? The vampires give me the best deal. For sure. My second big issue was confusion regarding Billy Cole, the character of Billy Cole. Now, oh, yeah. he is, as you said, accurately, the Renfield character. We understand is partner- to Jerry, the vampire. He is, quote-unquote, roommate, his caretaker. And as I learned for the first time from the Lost Boys when we did that podcast, that I assume Billy Cole is Jerry's daytime protector. Would I be correct in saying that? Yes, I would agree with that. Because we know Jerry has to sleep during the day in his coffin. He can't come out in the sunlight. But apparently Billy can. We see Billy outside a couple of times. Then later on the film... We see Billy coming to the aid of Jerry, protecting Jerry, 
when Peter and Charlie come to take Jerry out and Peter shoots him like six times with a revolver and he gets back up and we realize, oh, Billy is also undead because he takes the bullets and keeps charging up the staircase when Charlie takes a wooden stake and drives it through Billy's heart. And we get this gruesome kind of cool visual effect and makeup effect of Billy disintegrating and there's green goo and gop everywhere. That's cool. And he turns into a skeleton and everything. But my question is then Bill Banton, where I'm really confused is, was Billy a vampire then? I had to do a lot of research on this to figure this out. And Did Jerry turn him at some point and we just didn't see it? Or was he a vampire all along? There's no definitive answer to what he says. Most people say that he's technically a ghoul, but oh, I actually okay. think he's a golem. And a golem is a creature that is made from dirt and and then you do like this ritual and it comes to life. Cool. Just because of the way that he died. So I think literally created by Jerry. But most of the stuff he sees is a ghoul. But I'm like, when I look up ghoul, I'm like, no, he's not really a ghoul. I mean, could he be a half vampire? Maybe. Because mm-hmm. I think Renfield was and Renfield could walk during the day. He just never did the complete turn. He's a day walker. Like, right. Blade. So I would go with a golem. That's what I think. That's my own personal Bill Band, doing the deep dive research. I freaking love it, man. I applaud your efforts. I'm going to go with that. I love it. That's very cool, man. Yeah, I just got really confused, especially when Charlie stakes him in the chest because we were clearly led to believe that then he's a vampire because that's how vampires get killed. Well, he's not a zombie because not. Right. Yeah. Who knows? I don't think anybody really knows. There's no, you can't find it anywhere technically what he is. I only had one other small complaint. Did you have anything else? No, I'm good. At the end, it was, again, another favorite moment I didn't mention is when we do see Jerry turn into the vampire bat. The bat, to me, looks really cool. Yes. And got the the wicked teeth. And he takes a swipe at Peter Vincent as the bat and then bites the forearm of Charlie Brewster. In the following scene, it appears as though neither of them have been injured at all. That's my complaint. You don't see any scratches on Peter's cheek, and I don't think... Charlie's even, we don't see any blood coming from his forearm, as I recall. I could be mistaken. Call me out if I am. But yeah, part of me thought too, like, well, wouldn't technically Charlie start becoming a vampire at that point then? Correct. It raises the stakes that I got to kill him or or me and Amy are both going to become vampires. Right. But it doesn't get into that at all. No, I agree with you. All right. Time to move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's That Actor. Who did you choose this week? All right. So for this week's Hey, It's That Actor, I'm going with someone we've mentioned several times already, and that's Amanda Bierce, who portrays Amy Peterson, because Bill has already professed his love for her character on Married with Children, and I'm about to get to that. However, Amanda Bierce, actress in 82 to 83, was on 11 episodes of All My Children, the soap opera. She's in this in 1985. But of course, again, she's most recognizable as Marcy Darcy, Al Bundy's next door neighbor and nemesis from the long running hit television show Married with Children, which ran from 87 to 97. She was on 260 episodes of that show. Most recently, she was featured in the film Bros, which was in 2022, as the character Anne. 
Amanda Bierce has been openly gay since 1993, and uh, she lives in Atlanta with her adopted daughter, Zoe. Her announcement in Advocate Magazine made big headlines as she became the first primetime actress to come out. And she remains close with her co-stars from Married with Children, as the entire cast, especially Ed O'Neill, were all very supportive of her decision to come out as gay in 1993. She remains grateful for their support and their open-armed acceptance of her since even into the 90s, being a lesbian on a major primetime show was something of a taboo. Amanda Bierce studied directing at the American Film Institute and the University of Southern California. She began directing television while appearing on Married with Children. And from 91 to 97, she directed 31 episodes of the show. According to my research, she was the only cast member to direct an episode of Married with Children. She also directed episodes of Reba, Mad TV, uh, Malcolm and Eddie, Polly, The Jamie Foxx Show, Dharma and Greg, etc., etc., so on and so forth. And then also the movie Jesse in 2011 and Ladies Man. So shout out to Amanda Bierce. She is this week's Hey, It's That Actor. Yeah, I couldn't think of anything else she had done outside of this movie and that show. But yeah, I didn't realize she did a lot of directing. Yeah. Interesting. I think I did hear that she and Ed O'Neill did have a falling out, though, unfortunately. Mm, I don't know if they made amends. And if I'm mistaken, I know that she did get married, and I don't know if she has any more children. That's my bad for not being more clear on that point. That's what I got for Amanda Bierce. All right. Let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about Fright Night? Fright Night. Yeah, I can't do it as well. Oh, no. It's a, <laughs> I, I just want to keep saying it alongside you. I know. You. That's the thing. You just want to say it that way, though. Yep. Yeah, as we said, in that era, many local TV stations in the United States had horror hosts. Tom Holland, the director, decided it would be natural for the boy, Charlie, to seek aid from his local TV host. Here's the quote. The minute I had the character of Peter Vincent, I had the story. Charlie Brewster was the engine, but Peter Vincent was the heart. Now, once Tom Holland had conceived of that character, Holland knocked out the first draft of the script in three weeks. Another quote. And I was laughing the entire time, literally on the floor, kicking my feet in the air in hysterics. All right. So the original ending of Fright Night was going to be a little bit different. So at the end scene, when we see uh, Peter Vincent back on air hosting Fright Night, front of a live television audience it was going to end with charlie and amy making out on the couch we would see peter on the show in the background and then peter would say tonight's creepy crawler is dracula strikes again obviously about vampires you know what vampires look like don't you they look like this and then suddenly peter would transform into a vampire on live television as Amy and Charlie looked on in terror. Kind of a, the howling moment right there. Mm. I'm glad they did not go in that direction. Gotcha. But that would fall into what you asked earlier about them getting injured. And then could they have possibly been vampires because of that? And yeah, Peter would have been. Right. Due to a mix-up, Stephen Joffreys, who plays Evil Ed, had an awkward audition for Anthony Michael Hall's role in Weird Science. And he made an indelible impression on Jackie Birch, who suggested him for Fright Night. I assume Jackie was the casting director. Although he was not a horror movie fan, Joffrey's loved the script, so he called his agent and emphatically declared that he would love to audition for Charlie Brewster. No, Steve, his agent replied. You're wanted for the part of Evil Ed. 
and Joffrey's was simultaneously baffled and heartbroken. What do they see in me that they think I should be this? Well, it worked out, Joffrey's said. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, So the scene that was one of your favorite scenes, the wolf transformation back into Evil Ed, poor Stephen Joffrey had to spend a staggering 18 hours having full body makeup applied to do that scene. Dang. How do you get through that? Ah, man, I really feel for that guy. And then supposedly there was one moment where they were uh, like applying the drool stuff to his, his mouth. Right. I read this. Yes. Yeah. And they accidentally used glue instead of the stuff. And luckily they caught that in time or they, I mean, they literally could have killed him. Yeah. He started complaining about the weird taste in his mouth and they realized it was adhesive. And it was like going to make his mouth stick together. Not good. Right. There's no way I could do 18 hours. Oh my God. Might as well just be full 24. That's a full day, man. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got to act. Jeez. Well, on the subject of time in the makeup chair for the transformation sequences up to eight hours, not 18, but eight hours were needed to prepare Sarandon's makeup. Sarandon was uncomfortable spending that long sitting in a chair for uh, doing nothing since he had experience doing his own makeup for his work on the stage he volunteered to help. He did some of the stippling, and while the makeup men were applying prosthetics to his face and head, he worked on the finger extensions. Sarandon has often joked that the rubber fingers caused difficulties whenever he had to urinate. So costume supervisor Mort Schwartz constantly offered to help him. Here's the quote from Sarandon. I said to Maury, thank you, no, I'll just use a coat hanger. (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) i'll be honest i loved the fingers and the fangs but that one scene where we kind of first see him in charlie's room i was like "Eh, i didn't need that makeup i would have been okay if all that happened at the very end just the fingers and fangs were eerie enough for me they were enough i agree i was like you could have saved some of that money and put it somewhere else and then did all that stuff at the very end when he's going through his death. I totally agree. And that's something I didn't want to harp on because it's typical Jason harping is that there's very little subtlety. There are moments of subtlety in this, but they are few and far between. This movie moves fast and the reveals come quickly. Right. And he's in full makeup right off the bat. And you're like, oh, we're not even going to pretend that he's not even going to be coy about it or try to. Right. Or even the eyes is fine. Sure. Good call. I agree, man. Okay, so uh, when filming, uh, William Ragsdale injured his foot running down a flight of stairs. While Ragsdale and crew initially thought this was just a sprain, the sound recorder actually heard a bone break in the headphones. So the actor was rushed to the hospital, and because of the injury, Ragsdale's action scenes had to be pushed back while he recovered. It caused the movie to run long, just because it took him a while to come back. All right. Here we go. Uh, The character Peter Vincent, I believe, is well known because of his name being that he was named for two actors well known for their appearances in horror movies, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price. All right. So uh, director Tom Holland came up with the last minute idea to have one vampire sporting a giant shark mouth grin in the finale of the movie. So there wasn't much time or money left in the movie's budget to create a prosthetic piece. But... Tom convinced a visual effects artist to come up with something over a single weekend. 
And of course we see that Amy wears that in the finale. And that was really only supposed to be used for one shot, but it looks so great. It ended up being more than the scene. And it took me a while to realize that was the same one that was used in the poster, that same face. Mm, yeah. It became iconic. Something that was just supposed to be like a throwaway for one shot became a really big piece of that movie. So I thought that was pretty cool. Very cool. Uh, the next little tidbit I have, I hope I'm not stepping on yours, Bill Bant, because you're a big fan of Ghostbusters, a huge fan of Ghostbusters. Well, a puppet that was created for the ghost librarian's monstrous visage in Ghostbusters 1984, the good old ghost librarian. I know you're a big fan of the ghost librarian, Bill Bant. Scared you as a kid? We covered that. (laughs) Well, that puppet was rejected as being too terrifying for a PG movie. So when the FX crew subsequently went to work on this film, they realized the rejected model resembled the vampire bat they'd created. So they repurposed and utilized it for the vampire's fiery destruction. A little Ghostbusters Fright Night crossover. All right, that's all I have for facts and trivia. All right, let's keep it moving. So box office of Fright Night was released on August 2nd, 1985 in 1,542 theaters. On an estimated budget of $9.5 million, it earned $24.9 million domestically. It debuted number three at the box office with $6.1 million, beating out Weird Science, which had also debuted that week. Fright Night would stay in the top 10 for another three weeks and would be the 33rd highest movie of 1985, just ahead of Summer Rental, which we discussed during our second season. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of Fright Night was split. Gene enjoyed the movie's witty beginning, but thought the second half of the film was bogged down by its gory special effects. Roger found the film fun and thought the ending worked because it was a vampire film and gory special effects were warranted. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 82%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.0. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Fright Night? Do you think that when Charlie recruits Peter Vincent, do you think that Charlie believes that Peter Vincent is a real vampire killer? And when he finds out that, I mean, Peter Vincent, who's pretty honest about the fact that he's simply an actor, Charlie still wants him to help kill jerry so at that point is it just because he knows peter has the tools and the knowledge even though it's just according to the lore that supposedly had been just made up at that point but now is real and charlie just needs somebody to help him so that's why he still wants peter to help him that is a very good question because i think in that moment the police aren't helping you your friends aren't helping you your mom is doing nothing for you. Where the hell do you turn? And you turn to a B-level actor who's played a vampire killer in movies. And you can't believe going into it that he would really believe in vampires or really know. It's desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah, you just it's one of those things. You just have to go with it. Yeah. Let's say you, Bill Bant, in real life encountered a vampire. Who do you go to? for expert advice in this fiction, Charlie in his desperation runs to local TV hosts, which I think is funny because then when he 
expresses his desperation later on. He's got all, he's <laughs> created all these wooden stakes, et cetera, in his room. And Amy and Ed come over and they're like, uh, maybe we should go talk to Peter Vincent. He's like the go-to guy. And clearly the local TV hosts are easily accessible. That's kind of cool. I don't know if you could just run to your local TV station and talk to the, uh, the actors. I know they're not maybe big Hollywood stars, but still. That's kind of cool. You can just go over. You know what? I'm just going to run over to the TV station real quick and talk to the uh, the host. Right. But to be my point really just being that, do you go to a TV host for, to help you kill the vampire because he plays a vampire killer on TV? I don't know. It's just in that first scene when Charlie goes to the TV station to talk to Peter Vincent, he seems really convinced that Peter Vincent has true knowledge of how to vanquish a vampire yeah it is kind of weird that he would do that but yeah i mean even think about your question if i knew my neighbor was a vampire Mm -hmm. the first issue that i would have is how do i know any of that stuff we've seen in film is true the reflection or the stake through the heart or the holy water the garlic that all could be bs and if even if it wasn't bs which version of it is true Correct. Because we see all kinds of different versions. For instance, in this version, to turn someone to a vampire, all you have to do is bite them. Versus like a, an interview with the vampire. I was thinking about this. Like to turn a vampire, you bite them, but then they're going to die unless the one that is bitten drinks the blood of his maker. So there's just different versions of the lore. What do we know that would be really true if this was a real yeah. life situation? We don't. So it's kind of it's scary because I, I always joke, you know, being a big zombie fan, like if the zombie apocalypse really happened, is it really true if I blow a zombie's head off that that would be it? Not necessarily. Who knows? Or if a zombie bites me, that means I'm going to become a zombie. That might not be true. Yeah. But that people might be getting killed because, oh, you got bit. You're going to turn. I'm going to kill you. Like, no, no, no. I just might have a really bad infection. That's it. We don't know. It makes sense, but it doesn't make sense that Charlie would go to Peter Vincent about this. Yeah, and uh, he's just a teenage kid, and he mm-hmm. doesn't have anywhere else to go. That's his yeah. only option. It works for the fiction. We need it. I didn't want to blow a hole in it. I just was curious as to your thoughts, and thank you for your thoughts. What questions do you have? Any Or an additional thought, maybe? I'll do a thought, and then I'll do a question. Just because you, you know how I love keeping track of when they say a character's name over and over again? Now, this doesn't rank that high up there, but we know back in The Lost Boys, Michael's name was said 118 times, and then we did Heather's, and that was 90 times. Charlie is not quite up there, but it is said a lot, 62 times. Not too shabby. That's a lot of Charlie's. (laughs) That's good stuff, man. So at the very end of the film, the very, 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 very end of the film, Charlie looks across the way to the... Well, what should be an empty house where Jerry the Vampire once resided with his partner, Billy. But they're gone. They've been taken care of. But then we see the glowing red eyes and we hear Evil Ed's voice. Are we supposed to, are we we led to believe that Evil Ed is still alive? Or are we just hearing the echo of his voice in Charlie's mind? Or it's still, it's a fun ending. Are we just supposed to believe, oh, maybe a new vampire's moved in? I read a funny theory on that, that the red eyes were actually brake lights that were reflected from the street. I was like, okay. <laughs> That'd be good. I like that. If it were made, made a little more clear, that would have been fun. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, how would Evil Ed be back? 
if he's clearly killed. But I think they, um, I did read that they did a comic book series for a while, and Ed was back, and they actually did bring back Cherry too at one point. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how that happened. We, we sat. Th- yeah. I don't know. It, it kind of takes away from that scene too of watching him die, because it's like, mm-hmm. oh, he's he is back. What, how did that happen? I didn't like that to be honest. I'd rather than like another character now a werewolf moves in or something yeah yeah just posing questions i had a bunch of other questions that you know we can't answer it's just you know we can theorize and and write this ourselves but things like how long have billy and jerry known one another who was the woman in the painting who was she to jerry we can assume it was a love of his a past love but still be kind of cool to know a little more of the history between jerry and this particular woman that looks a lot like amy we assume Jerry was planning on making Amy his wife, and then, I don't know, did she end up just being a concubine? I don't know. Uh, regardless, it is safe to assume the second coffin that we do see with the dirt in it was made for Amy. Is that correct? Would I be correct in assuming that? That's a good, yeah, that's a good one. Because we do see in the film that there is a second coffin that is smaller than Jerry's coffin. Right. And... One might be led to believe, oh, maybe that was Billy's coffin. But now we had all kinds of confusion over the character of Billy. Yep. And you cleared that up for us. He was a Gollum, Gollum, right? As Gollum, like Gollum yes. from Lord of the Rings. Okay. There's just some other random questions there, but because uh, I just always want to know more. But that is the sign of a somewhat good movie, at least. You know, when you're intrigued. Yeah. You want to know more. Yeah, it would have been nice to go through the house. Because they say they're antiquities dealers. You're pretty sure it's just stuff that Jerry's just picked up over the years that he's just had. So going back to see what some of that stuff is would maybe give you an idea of how long he has been walking the earth. Maybe he's an ancient vampire. Been around with Connor McLeod. <laughs> In the end, there can only be one. Or there can be only one. I want to get my quotes right. All right, Jason, here's my one question. If you yes. had the opportunity to be a vampire, would you take it? Ooh, great question. Of course. Uh, I'm not saying of course, yes. Uh, just Of course, that's a great question. So tempting. Immortality, all the powers that come along with it, power of seduction, transformation, metamorphosis, you know, that ESP, extrasensory perception, flying potentially. Being young forever, depending on when I was turned. Probably right. wouldn't want to turn into a vampire at age 95. Right. The answer is no. It's so alluring. But being undead does have its downsides, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on the fence on that one. But you, you know what? You actually brought up uh, another thought. Because we have that scene, but I meant one of my favorite scenes, is when Jerry goes over to Charlie and basically says, forget it or else you're going to pay. If vampires do have that mind control, why don't you just mind control Charlie into forgetting or convincing mm. him maybe they were just role playing next door sure, like, and just be like, yeah, it's my little fake fangs. It's a kinky girl. <laughs> yeah. A little role playing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a good question. And that's, you know, making one of these films would you would have to sit down and establish the rules, right? Yeah. Someone's like trying to do very clear. So like, okay, we, here's the precedent that's set. And we would be like, all right, crew, you need to sit down and here's the movies you need to watch. The Lost Boys, 
Fright Night, any of the old Dracula movies, you know, watch the classics, Nosferatu, whatever it might be, and learn all the different lores and then fashion your own rules and then be clear about them in the film. Because, yeah, it's just, again, it's the just go with it factor. We understand that. It's sometimes like, oh, well, if he can do this, what, what, you know, the power scaling, right? It's like, mm-hmm. how powerful are your villains in this particular case? And, uh, yeah, he wasn't able to make Charlie think that he was not a vampire. So I don't know. Yeah. Have you seen any of the sequels, Bill Bant? I did see the second one, barely remember it, and I did see the remake. I did see the remake, yeah. I didn't realize there was a sequel to the remake, so I've not seen that one. That I was not aware of. Yeah. But I did see the remake with Colin Farrell. Yeah, I've only seen that one once. And I almost wanted to revisit that one, too, to see if there was a little bit, because I recall there might have been a little more subtlety into the buildup in that particular version. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I can't say for sure. I can't I can't yeah. remember. I've only seen uh, the other ones just once each, so there's very little I can remember about them. All right, let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five crosses, what do you give Fright Night? Bill, say it right. Fright Night. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I give this uh, resounding strong 3.5. So- oh, sorry. What was it? 3.5? Crosses. Crosses. Thank you. See, I was so... Focused. Uh, I was focused on the wrong thing. Pronunciation. Enunciation. 3.5 crosses. Would I have liked a little more setup? Sure. Would I have liked a little more subtlety in the beginning? Yeah. Would I have liked one more scene showing evil Ed's vulnerability and being an outcast and actually having a flair for the macabre? Sure. Would I have liked one more heartfelt scene of relationship development between Amy and Charlie? Yes. Would I have wanted to know more of Jerry's background as a vampire and his specific relationship to Billy and more importantly, the woman in the painting? Absolutely. But I got to drop it, Bill Ban. I got to leave it at the door as if it were a vampire that wasn't invited in. This movie's a blast. Some really nice performances from Sarandon, from Roddy McDowell. I love Stephen Joffrey's in this as Evil Ed. Yeah, the makeup effects, awesome. Some great visual effects. Love that vampire bat. Some good, goofy, disgusting gore. It's all over the place. I just really enjoyed this rewatch, and I'm glad we did this one, Bill Bant. It was a pleasure. It's great. That's a 3.5 crosses for me. Yeah, I'm giving it four crosses. Nice. I love the Peter-Charlie dynamic. Um, I just love the spin on vampire lore. Uh, just a simple premise. Hey, I got a vampire moved in next door to me. That stuff just... Uh, just gets me the I know what it is and no one else believes me kind of premise. And this one works a lot. Chris Randon as our main vampire. Great. And the fact that we only have maybe six really characters that tell this whole story and it just seems a lot bigger than it is just works for me. I, I really wish we had more adventures of, of Charlie and Peter going around killing vampires. This was like pre Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'd love to have watched that kind of show. This is definitely one of the few times I think so far where I've actually liked the movie way more now than I did back then. So I, I, I bumped it up to four. Awesome. All right. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all 80 moviespodcastcom 
If you want to reach out, please email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. For the final episode of our Splatter Cinema Month, we will be discussing Fly, starring Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. Oh, you're so cool, Brewster. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.